1: Glad to be connecting with Michael from the Religious Addicts Anonymous website. You do a lot of writing on the RAA website, which is religiousaddicts.wordpress.com. Thanks, Michael, for dropping into MindShift Podcast. Thank you very much, Clint. Yes, very much enjoy. We actually had a little chat last week and had a couple of internet connectivity problems, but in a way, this is turning into a good thing because I was able to spend a bit more time going through the RAA website There's a lot of really interesting articles on there. And it's something I'd never really heard of. Can you describe and define what a religious addict is?
0: Yeah, let me have a go. I mean, probably the place to start is to say that sort of in humility, in a way, we don't know that much about it. And we're sort of trying to find out. So there hasn't been a lot of literature on this, really. There's a few academic articles, a book by a writer called Leo Booth, and there's still a collection of people. In our very small fellowship. But just uh, some sort of um, reference points. In our town, when we were growing up, there was a man dressed as Jesus walking around. He wasn't Jesus, by <laughs> the way. Just
1: okay, just put that and out there. Had... <laughs> <laughs> Let's clarify
0: that. <laughs> yeah, in case anyone's wondering. And uh, he, he carried a, a sort of wooden cross. And, and people were quite kind to him, you know, because they knew that he had something that wasn't quite right with him maybe he was a religious addict because something in his brain uh, started to take on some speculating really but take on the idea um, which is quite common in the church but not quite so uncontained that there was something special about him that there was something even more chosen than you would you know simply okay you're chosen in Ephesians 1 or wherever it is but these people are even more chosen and I think some of us um who are sort of coming out of that faith that type of faith have had those moments where we feel like oh I could be the next kind of Moses I could be the next Isaiah maybe in a great worship meeting so maybe it's people with a vulnerability to sort of brain chemistry or experiences that kind of take them a bit higher than other people and there's a there's a window there of it becoming compulsive and a a major coping mechanism in the same way like people might have a get a bet or a gamble and not become a gambling addict or they're not a workaholic even though they work hard but there's a certain vulnerability in process addicts that is there and people find themselves in that environment and they kind of go in that direction
1: Mm -hmm. and as we talked about last week it's not limited to certainly evangelical christianity is it? i think both you and i came out of that background didn't we But you found yourself being developing into a religious addict, didn't you, in your time in Christianity? What were the symptoms? What did it look like for you? Okay, I've got the big ones
0: I've got. and So when I first started writing the blog, I was like, I bet everyone gets the real trancey thing where they put on, and and no disrespect to Hill's song or Bethel, the the musicians who I'm sure are very sincere, but you put that music on. And to me, when I put Bethel on, like you could you could put me on an, uh, on a brain you know chart thing, and my brain chemistry just goes bon, like you know only spirit, and then I'm just like straight away something happens in my brain, the lights come on. Now, for years I lived under the uh, impression that I was so close to God that you literally it would just light up in me as as as, as soon as it um kind of happened, and I, that would sort of not only was it kind of euphoric, it was also sort of trancey. So the trance thing is is one side of it, and I suppose people in charismatic pentecostal denominations could be more vulnerable to that at the same time you have other things like magical thinking uh, uh, obsession over um, you know things that you might have done wrong you know have have you know have i committed the you know unforgivable sin the sin against the holy spirit i mean that that has dog believers since whoever wrote it down wrote it down you know and that that relates to um, something in catholicism which they've understood and called scrupulosity where you literally obsess about something that you feel like you can't be forgiven for, just obviously today we might call that OCD as well from a certain, Mm -hmm. another vantage point, Well, you could get, you know, people in the reform tradition who are kind of like, exactly how does this, you know, propitiation, you know, thing fit together with uh, the other scripture? And it could be like that driving, 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 the more they understand, "Quote unquote," understand. You know, you could like read John MacArthur's sort of whole commentary of the Bible and kind of download it into your brain and be like, "Okay, I'm getting there now, but I need to get further and further." You could you could be driving all the more more of these angles, three or four of them at the same time, and be a long way from reality. Something on the inside in a child or shame or a part of your genuine spirituality or whatever it is is just getting like battered and it's like, "What the heck's going on?" You know, that could be under the surface, but you wouldn't notice it
1: really. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me because I developed what I see now as what you describe religious scrupulosity as a, as a young mm. kid growing up in a very fundamentalist Christian home. But I think it was maybe for different reasons in the sense that I was raised with this sort of surveilling God, this sort of fear of the rapture, mm. fear of going to hell. And that developed yep. in me as a young person, a fear of going to hell or being left behind in the rapture and those kind of things. So I would study my Bible, I would pray, I would pray the sinner's prayer, I would make sure I'd, I wasn't thinking bad thoughts, and I develop what I think is religious scrupulosity. Does that mm. relate to what you're describing in terms of religious addiction?
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's um, the, the sort of larger movement, as I as I understand it at the moment, in the whole people deconstructing and ex, ex-cult um, survivors and all that kind of thing, is to identify religious trauma. And I think it would certainly be I mean, a young mind, um, and I know Marlene Wine and other people have written about this a lot, a young mind doesn't know what to do with an overwhelming supreme being, a creator who hates you and loves you, and, you know, you're going to be condemned and you think you'll probably be okay, but you're not sure. That message is reinforced again and again. You know, the, the temptation to ritualize your way out of it, it's, I mean, any tendency at all to OCD, those are kind of like the perfect conditions for it to come out. Now, people can, people leave the church and sort of, One way or another, that mindset recedes or you know goes away to a greater extent. I think somebody I would identify as a religious addict might be somebody who experiences the highs and lows of that to such a degree that you know standing up again in in a meeting and the high of I must I must be forgiven now again and the low of you know all the shame and self like low self esteem which is really being perpetuated by the teaching and the environment to a large extent. It's kind of like some people like alcoholics and they quit drinking and they're like oh I thought you were one and then you're not really and some people leave the church and they're kind of okay Or some people have a sort of a brain chemistry thing where the lights have been going on so strongly you know by the lights I mean kind of like neurotransmitters and but that kind of reaction that they are kind of having a process addiction experience like a workaholic or a gambling addict might and some of the insights from people who've recovered from those Addictions can be helpful maybe to those people. Well, they'd probably be just at home in a religious trauma recovery or all or, or the other things that are available, really.
1: It seems like it relates to people, as you say, who might have a, a tendency towards addictive or compulsive behaviours. Is that, is that yeah. correct? Because you're talking about gambling addiction or other addictions, people with addictive personalities. So for them, religion can be an opiate as well. Because I've talked to people about this before, and they're saying... You know, when Mm -hmm. I went to church, for example, which is our experience, chasing that religious high week in and week out, especially in your more, as you say, charismatic and Pentecostal circles where the the worship is so exuberant, so over the top, such an emotive experience that you get Mm. drawn up into this experience. And then you're always chasing that and chasing that and chasing that. Do you find that's the case that it tends to maybe relate more to people who have an addictive kind of personality?
0: Yeah, at the moment, I would say that that. That's what I would say, yeah. So, I mean, famously as well, you get uh, people in the church who are quite famous and very, very um, on fire for God and all those things we used to say. And and then it's revealed uh, and actually you know he's got a secret life of um prostitution I'm thinking of Rabbi Zacharias and Jimmy Swagger mm-hmm. and, and those types of people I don't know if they're religious addicts but take them as an example you know, listeners might know and instead of thinking oh that's really good the Christian bit and that's really bad the sexual acting out bit obviously the sexual acting out was 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 bad um for the people who were victimized by it but in terms of brain chemistry that's the thing with addiction is like the brain doesn't know this is good or this is bad. It's trying to find what some people have called homeostasis, a balance, a balance of satiation. So it's like, oh, yeah, give me some of the lust thing. Oh, give me some of the religious high. And in that cocktail in the mind, although it sort of tears you apart in terms of your um, experience of shame and dissonance and everything, the brain doesn't really care. It's just like, yeah, yeah, actually, that sex and religion thing works quite well together. And so far we're seeing people with sexual addiction or lust problems you know, and religious addiction seem to be co-morbid, I think (laughs) it's a word, but fortunately it hasn't been morbid for anyone we know yet.
1: Mm, Absolutely, And
0: and maybe maybe food as well.
1: Could be, yeah. So
0: any kind of compulsive Mm
1: -hmm. addiction. Looking at your landing page, I found this explanation really interesting. You talk about, you know, describing religious addiction. You say it's a compulsive mood-altering religious practice. And I like what you say. You say that Consequences of religious addiction can take many forms, but the disease leads the addict into high levels of unmanageability, including mental Mm. health problems, self-hatred, PTSD, relationship and financial problems. The religious addict has developed the capacity to produce a spiritual high and or trance-like state, the source of which the addict attributes to a higher power. But in reality, the cause is a pathological response in the mind of the addict to heavily ritualized behavior and what I found interesting about that is I've been going through Robert Lifton's Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, which is an interesting book about cult you know, practices, brainwashing and all that. And he talks mm. about milieu control and mystical manipulation are two of the hallmarks of what cults and groups use to manipulate their followers into thinking. It's what he calls mm. the psychology of the pawn, its planned spontaneity. It seems spontaneous, but it's actually re- recursed and choreographed those those exuberant experiences. And I'm thinking, does that yeah. feed into your definition of religious addiction? We were actually pawns in a system.
0: I think you're probably right, Clint. I mean, I, I haven't put those two ideas together in my own mind before. But when you were saying about uh, was it something like planned sort of magical yeah, spontaneity. spontaneity? Right. Is that is that when where, where the guy goes up and he's kind of like what I imagine he goes tonight. I really feel there's something happening, and I think you can feel it too. That kind of Mm, bullshit. The spirit's
1: about to move.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) well, well, quite. And, uh, I mean, what comes out of that for me initially is the idea that there there is a connection between between all the people in that room. And we are, at the time, uh, the people in the seats listening to the leaders who are doing that. We are quite vulnerable, you know, to to them leading us around like that. And 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 one thing, I mean, I've I've actually gone from myself. I mean, it's, who knows what I'll be like tomorrow? But right now, I've gone from sort of like a level six Richard Dawkins atheist. There is no gods, black hole deconstruction. That's mm. it. The sort of thinking: is there anything that could be reconciled about this? You know, is there something? quote unquote Christian that's just been built up psychically and so on is there something like a heart or or whatever it is now if I were to explore that in a Christian context I would not go to anywhere there was any preaching or anywhere there was any worship because and I think other studies have shown this that criticality you know and sort of like independence as soon as you're pitched slightly lower than somebody slightly higher than you on a stage and they've got amplification and they've got sort of that kind of rhetorical situation where they they're telling you something that you're supposed to believe there's something possibly evolutionary mechanism which just basically switches off and will be like yeah just do that to me so with the music and everything else i think the religious addict is especially vulnerable to that Mm -hmm. so the only place i would go right now and it's partly because it's the opposite of my reform tradition i mean I'd be, I was, I was like, you know, well, Catholics are obviously completely wrong. The church next door, they're obviously completely wrong. Everyone's got that thing wow. about everyone else is completely, completely wrong. So the wrongest of all was Mary, quote unquote, worship and Latin mass. If I can't understand it and I can just sit there and my souls, so they're all, all, all sort of Eastern Orthodox. I might give that a try. That'd be my starting point. No preaching because the brain just, whatever the brain chemistry is doing, the preaching and the worship triggers it. And I can't tell the difference between what might be a healthy spiritual experience and what is the pathological variety in that situation.
1: It seems like you're describing that person who just takes their spirituality, their religiosity to another whole level. One of your articles (laughs) I liked was, what is it? The Icarus fellowship. And you talk about this story, you know, remembering years and years later, the story of Icarus, here's this Greek sort of mythology flies too close to the sun and the wax in his wings melts and he crashes into the sea. And That's a stereotype or an archetype of religious addicts. And I like what you say. You say, we love the sun so much, talking about religious addicts. We didn't know our wings would melt. What possible harm could the sun, the source of our lives, do unto us was our reasoning. While other believers simply existed in a more moderate, sustainable psychic envelope, we pushed ever onwards into the light until it burned through our psycho-spiritual structures and left us in ruins you know, so that that's a striking image, isn't it? You're like Icarus who flew too close to the sun and now you've crashed mm. and burned, whereas other people seem to be able to maintain a sort of maybe a slightly more healthy balance.
0: Yeah, well, these were the people, like, those of us who have come from like being so spiritual. Mm. These were the lukewarm believers. These were the, you know, revelations to whatever it is. Yeah, these gonna are sp- going to get yeah, out mouth. of the mouth. <laughs> be yeah. careful, you know, you've got a spiritual life that's going to last you your whole life. You know, that's not good enough. I mean, absolutely. I mean, So what it speaks to to me today, Clint, is that, you know, in the rhetoric of, you know, evangelical Christianity, broadly, you get the idea of a universal gospel, which is as long as you're not too wrong, the thoughts in your head aren't too wrong when you get your faith, grace moment, you're basically saved and you're, you're in the club. That's universal. And it's the same experience for everybody, whether you've had a good family, bad family, you're in this church, that church. It's a universal salvation experience. And then you start reading the Bible. And it's like, okay, so basically, you can exercise your will and your, your spiritual practices and, and direct yourself to go down this path as much as you want, and nothing can possibly go wrong. Might, maybe in your life, depending on the theology, something bad could happen in your life, but nothing will go wrong for you spiritually. Now, this turns out for religious addicts to be completely wrong, because because it's a dog, it's dogma and it doesn't relate to organic living beings, which is what we are. The whatever wherever faith rests, you know, in 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 the heart mind you know psyche whatever it is and obviously humans have had belief systems for quite a while there's something there that will kind of like take one on board be it communism or neoliberalism or buddhism or what have you but it's part of an organic body and it's possibly even so sometimes um this is getting a bit maybe rarefied but sometimes when life throws things up it does so on the basis of analogies to things that already exist so we talk about well, my heart, you know, I love God in my heart. I love my wife in my heart. And we mean sort of an, uh, the, the place where we feel our emotions. But that could be an analogy to the actual physical blood pumping heart that life has simply put into us because it knows that one thing worked and it's sort of repurposed it. You see that in things like the duckbill platypus, mm-hmm. although it's still physical there. It's got a beak and webbed feet and it's like there's little things that could get plucked and recycled. So, it's, maybe I'm talking about something slightly more than evolution there, but things seem to get recycled. But the point about it is, is that it's an organic thing. Whatever spirituality is or is not, it's organic. It can be overwhelmed, it can be destroyed by things that you think are good. And you can overwhelm yourself with so much energy that it just cannot sustain it. And it will, it's as if it sucks back in like the, little, the two things on a snail. They're not antlers, are they? Well, mm, the with the antenna. a antenna. Yeah. yeah it sucks back in your heart's like uh-uh, i'm not doing you think that's a good idea to to pray without ceasing and crucify the flesh i don't think it's a good idea because i'm the heart is not dogmatic it's organic it's part of our our life so you hit it with dogma and in the end if you do it uh, in the addictive way you'll basically destroy yourself
1: mm-hmm. so in the context let's say of our example of christianity evangelicalism Does the religious addict look down his or her nose at those people with a quote, simple faith that you just described? It's not enough just to have a simple faith. You've got to have all the answers because I can remember as an evangelical, I got into things like apologetics. I got into, you know, theology. I read Calvin. I read Luther. I read Augustine. I wanted to find out answers to my faith, as you say, those questions, and it wasn't just enough for me to satisfy my own you know, desires and questions and, and issues and things. I wanted to be able to teach other people and be that sort of expert, which is partly why I became a pastor and then a Bible college teacher, I think, because I wanted to be in that elevated position, having all the, quote, answers. Does that relate to your experience at all? Yes, it
0: does. And people we've talked to who've come along have had some experiences quite similar to that as well. As I uh, As I see it now, so You know, on one level for me, it was about trance. On one level, it was about magical thinking, you know, ritualization. But on another level, um, being of that type of mind as well, where, you know, I'd read a lot and essentially uh, I'm I'm sort of orientated towards truth-seeking, which is a good thing as long as it doesn't get hijacked by dogma, sorry, Mm -hmm. hijacked by dogma. So it, it can become like, you know, I will have so complex and so complete a worldview that nothing can sort of get through, uh, which is sort of fundamentally, I guess, a way of defending yourself against things that don't fit. In the process of doing that, I've had to minimise the effects of of evolution on the Christian worldview and and such, such things. But that, that defense can be con- pursued compulsively. I remember, I think it's Phil Fernandez was the one I was listening to. He's got loads and loads of podcasts about who would you say to this? It's sort of like a, a Josh McDowell, but he's sort of online, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like, who, who, what would you say to this? What would you say to that? you know, as if I could fill in all the brick uh, in the wall so that no bad things could get through and cause doubt, I suppose, doubt and fear, mm-hmm. possibly what I was trying to avoid fundamentally. Yeah,
1: I can remember that going to Bible college and seminary and looking up to my professors for that very reason, because I felt that these men and women had figured it out, you know. And I remember asking one of my theology professors, I said to him, so when did it all sort of come together for you? When did you sort of figure it all out, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, that question i think reveals a lot about where i was coming from you know that idea that that you could quote put it all together as a christian or whatever your religion is and have it all sort of figured out all the pieces would fall into place and i wouldn't have any more doubts or concerns or issues or anything do you feel that you resonate with that sort of description
0: yeah definitely and of course um so whether it's i mean analogous to other addictions could be insightful so the satiation and the the blocking the world out of hard drug use, um, which I, I know mostly from films and, and that kind of thing, you know, or the the complete unreality, you know, of, of somebody completely absorbed with lust. I mean, it's so absorbing that you might not notice that you're about to get sacked. You know, you hear stories about people and you're getting sacked mm. at work or something from using you know, pornography on the internet, what have you, that's how removed from reality, you know, one is. So um, the natural sort of existential questions that that one has, even people with, you know, um, reconstructed a a kind of spirituality now, like, whether it's like, well, I connect with nature, you know, or um, I love fish, or, you know, there could be a higher power or whatever, we don't quite know what it is, anything like that leaves you open to the winds of existential doubt and the mm-hmm. fundamental acknowledgement of your own sort of mortality, at least as we understand it. Uh, and, uh, you know, not just that, but um, all kinds of things go wrong. And your mag- magical thinking in the is, is is an antidote to that as well, where, you know, you think any day now this will happen or God's about to do this or I'm divinely protected against that. But actually, in order, for, I suppose, for us to grow up, for me to grow up anyway, need to face the reality which is any of those things could happen to me you know the existential winds are blowing fear and doubt are here as well as joy and meaning and creativity and all those other things
1: Really. yeah we're seeing a lot of that now aren't we certainly in america you know i'm 100 vaccinated by the blood of jesus yeah you know, i don't need the i don't need the covid jab oh. psalm 91 <laughs> and all that <laughs> back in just a few minutes in this conversation with michael from the religious addicts anonymous when we come back we're going to be getting into this issue of signs and symptoms of religious addiction maybe as we've been talking in the first half you've been thinking wait a minute i might be or i might have been a religious addict if like me you came out of a fundamentalist controlling or high controlling cult or group something like that. Then there's every chance that you develop some form of religious scrupulosity like I did. We're going to be talking about that. And then we're also going to be talking about how do you recover? It's in a way, it it is a compulsive sort of addiction. We're going to get into this issue of getting help. How do you recover? How do you reconstruct? How do you rebuild a new life apart from being a religious addict? So stay tuned for that coming after the second half. I just wanted to mention what's coming up in the next couple of episodes here. I've had a couple of really fascinating conversations already. They've been recorded. I talked the other week with Dr. Terry Daniel of the Ask Dr. Death podcast. And we are going to be talking about her upcoming conference, which is the conference on death, grief, and belief. That's going to be in July. Now, it is going to be held in Portland, Oregon. There's going to be an actual event an in-person event. However, you will be able to get access to all of the sessions afterwards. They're all going to be recorded. Terry has got some just unbelievable guests coming in for that conference. She's got, for example, Seth Andrews, the host of The Thinking Atheist, along with Frank and Dan from the Thank God I'm Atheist podcast. I'm also going to be one of the presenters. I'm doing a talk on a paper that I wrote a few years ago called What Happens After People Leave the Church. And that's gotten a lot of traction talking about different paths that people follow after they leave religion behind and so if you want to be a part of that you can get a discount by using the code mindshift when you book your tickets for the live event that is the death grief and belief.com website and then after the episode with dr terry daniel i've got a conversation coming out with dr david DeAndre. I chatted with him the other week he's an expat like myself we have actually a lot in common he lives in canada now but for years he was a missionary in ukraine both of us come out of the states we both come out of sort of teaching theology and bible studies and all those kind of things we were deep into evangelicalism and he like me has walked away from it all and he shares his stories so that's going to be a really interesting conversation coming up with dr david DeAndre. and in fact we've got a couple of other really cool things to announce and that is that on the 6th of february which is just a couple days after this episode drops We've got our very first MindShift patrons-only Zoom call on the 6th of February. We do that every month, and that is the first one we've done in 2022. And then on the 27th of February, we've got Rebecca Drumsta coming back. She's going to be our guest on our MindShift Zoom call that we do every month. And we're going to be talking about her book, When Family Hurts. And she was just a guest a couple of episodes ago talking about her book. So if you got a lot out of that discussion, you'll be enjoying Uh, this conversation with Rebecca Drumsta. And then next month in March, we're going to have Michael from this very podcast episode. Now he's going to be coming back in next month to be our guest for that call. And then we've also got Dr. David DeAndre coming back in April. So these are former guests that we want to have back on. If you want to get a chance to meet these people, have an hour long discussion with them, typically about the last Sunday of the month, then you need to support the show on Patreon. That is how you get access both to the patrons only Zoom calls as well as our monthly mind shift Zoom calls. So that is a way for you to get involved to join that community. Anyway, let's get on back into this discussion with Michael from the Religious Addicts Anonymous exploring religious addiction. Another interesting article on your site, Signs and Symptoms of Religious Addiction. I can certainly resonate with the top five. What does the religious addiction look like? You talk about unspoken dread that you could be damned unless compulsive ritual practices are completed on time. Practice of prayer is inherently mind-altering. Number three, widespread judgment of other people in the faith community for not being spiritual enough or not committed enough. Number four, belief that one's own doctrine is the most correct and it could possibly be other denominations. Other people are wrong. And then number five, deep fear of spiritual contamination, such as rock mm. music and liturgy of other denominations and TV movies. Anything could be spiritual contamination. Mm. I can definitely resonate with all five of those things on the list, you know. And it's kind of sad. Maybe I'm thinking now, was I a religious addict You know, when I was a Christian? What did it look like for you? I mean, what, what were some of those things that I read off the list? on your sort of daily practices, what did it look like? Well, so the last four
0: four or five years before I started this phase of recovery, um, I had um, very high anxiety, so much to the point that I'd be sitting at my desk at work and I would feel quite paranoid about all the people around around me, like uh, just unable to sort of relax and just do the work properly. And I basically resolved that um, I was going to get miracled out of this um, anxiety. So rather than exploring the roots of it, and so on, so um every single day for five years, I was praying for the breakthrough, and that would be half an hour in the morning, uh, half an hour on the train to church um, when when things would start to get uncomfortable, I would take time out either outside in my lunch hour. Um, and pray again, uh, this would, might be listening to worship music. So particularly the sort of rituals I had were like, so I would have, um, although I thought it might be slightly naughty because it didn't uh, mean there was an image in my mind. I had an image in my mind of Christ that had arisen in me from the gospels and I would put on something like Bethel or Hillsong and I would just sort of pray into that image, you know, just like pray and worship and, um, and I'd be sort of transported. But progressively in that four or five year period, the effect of those sort of prayers and so on, the association and the sort of tranciness of it, whether it decreased or not, um, it felt like it decreased because the anxiety and the discomfort, and then COVID started as well. It just wasn't working. It was like a classic case of, you know, I've drunk 10, 10 pints, as we say, over here, and I couldn't get drunk, which is what alcoholics say. You know, the mm-hmm. drinks stopped working. And it's like... But spiritual contamination is the other one I was going to mention. So now what the reason, the way I understand this now is that faith exists in a kind of a theater of the imagination, which is kind of semi-stable. So once you've kind of erected it, it will, it will will stay for a while. So when you focus on things like holiness, purity, the blood of Christ, sort of salvation from darkness into light, all of those images and everything that goes feeds into that construction, you know, is there. And, and, there's a temptation, or, or rather it's part of the central part of the discourse, that you keep it pure. You're told that you're keeping your soul pure, or your heart pure, and I'm not discounting that completely as a possibility. But the main thing I can see is that you're keeping your imagination pure. So what happens when you then go away and listen to Metallica or you watch The Evil Dead, you know, or you play one of the video games with Zombies or whatever, not, I would say that your soul is becoming contaminated, but your imagination, the envelope of the imagination is kind of being challenged. Now, this is where scrupulousness and OCD can come in. If you love and live in that purity so much, particularly as a means of avoiding damnation, which we mentioned already, it's quite a big motivation, you know, then any little thing like, oh, I saw a pop video, you know, Michael Jackson's thriller, and I think maybe there was a resonance of that and it's on me and I need the blood of Christ. And I I was very, very lost in all that.
1: Well, it reminds me just what you said two more of Robert Lipton's (laughs) categories. He talked about what groups put on us. They put on this demand for purity, and then the cult of confession, which is off the back of the demand for purity. So, groups, religious groups, are very good at putting sort of uh, demands on their followers that they will never be able to achieve or live up to. And then, when we inevitably fail, the religion says, well, now you've got to confess your sins. So it becomes this, mm. again, that can become a religious addiction cycle, I think, where I'm failing, but I can seek forgiveness. I'm failing, but I can seek forgiveness. And that itself becomes a compulsive religious cycle, can it?
0: Certainly, yeah. And and you see it as well in in, in sort of all over society as well. Like um, in this country, we have a thing where the Conservative Party kills one of their leaders and they might be about to do it now, you know, or, or, or the kind of horrible argument in the marriage and then on the fort reunion. And, and, you know, there's a kind of, it could be a human thing where, you know, Christianity is playing a very sort of um, damaging role in this right now, but, you know, in, in history, there's been this thing about, you know, ritual, killings and ritual sacrifices throughout the human history and it seems like um i think it was jung was writing about this that even in secular societies there are kind of ritual uh, killings you know if not literally and things like boris johnson might be about to go but certainly within the church you know obviously christ himself is a sort of a ritual killing so there's that but uh, but although it's been done once and for all so that mm-hmm. is final how can but we need to keep doing it because of our psychology or whatever dogma or whatever so we are the ones who need to keep being wrong because he, he doesn't need to keep being killed again, but we, we need to keep, being, you know, slamming mm. ourselves up against that sacrifice again and again and again. And it's, I mean, if you think about all of the psychic elements we have, you know, inheritance of, of all of our human experience, many of them are creative and, and can be loving and com- communitarian, but there's still the shadow, isn't there? There's the dark side. You know, we do inherit a little bit of the dark side as well, which, you know, people are in, now involved in sort of serious, sort of growing up you know in deconstruction and so on have noticed that it's not necessarily evil you have a thought it's not necessarily evil you know maybe it's just like the shadow you know and you're trying to sort of deal with that Christians who don't know with that they've got the shadow both the leaders and the the individuals and they keep smashing their shadow up against Mm -hmm. the cross and it doesn't it doesn't fix it it doesn't reduce shame it doesn't reduce shadow material unless you're in a very conducive type of faith environment where just so happens they're in tune with what actually will help you grow up. And there is some Christianity like that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are the steps to recovery then for the religious addict? Because some of your writings, you kind of resonate with a 12 step program. You talk about a Mm. higher power. One of your articles you talk about learning to rely on myself though, as opposed Mm. to that so-called higher power, which is sort of a universal 12-step program thing they don't necessarily say it's god the higher power Mm. it's just you must rely on the higher power to cure you of your addiction in that case maybe alcohol or whatever it might be how does the religious addict you know get those steps to recovery
0: truthfully um (laughs) we're we're not sure um so the first thing we do and we do know this is that you stop all compulsive religious practices now for Mm -hmm. the religious addict it sounds simple, right? for the religious addict who hasn't yet completely burned out or hit the brick wall, it's, it's almost impossible because the fear and the dread and hell itself, the hell that you carry inside of you already, will come to the surface, the thing that you've been trying to impress with your addiction. So, it's, you know, step one, we, we see, you know, we admitted we, we were, having, this isn't really formally written down, but something like, you know, um, we admitted we were powerless over a compulsive religious practices and we stopped doing them. You know, mm. and then what seems to happen is the void comes up now, the void is just a word for all of the repressed material, all of the existential sort of fear, all of the doubt that the to- total 360 degree world he was meant to be keeping out. Well, it's here, you know, are we just a rock, you know, floating around the sun? All the dread, you know, it's literally like, oh, my God, I've turned into Nietzsche and Jean-Paul Sartre and mm-hmm. you know all these people who just, you know, yeah. nihilism such in. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly, being destroyed by their lack of faith. Now that's me. And and so far, what some of us have noticed, and we're still a very small community, is that there is a type of an end to that, or that after a while, the void. It's almost like in two thousand and one, is it, where they go through the they go through a teleport, you know, black hole thing, and they come out the other side. You know, it's like oh god you know there is something like on the other side so to some people that's like i never want to go near any spirituality again i'm doing therapy you know i'm playing football i'm doing all the psychic energy that was going into that and rebalancing it you know i need a healthy life balance you know for some people it's like well maybe there's something in there that wasn't just purely pathological maybe there's something there and, and I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to this a bit because I'm, I'm, my family is still largely Christian. Some of my best friends are Christian. And the ones who aren't sort of being destroyed by it, on a good day, they have a kind of a love and a something about them that is there. You know, it just seems to be there. So what interests me is, without erecting the whole sort of theatre of, you know, dogmatic Christianity, what does it take to plug into whatever it is that makes some people more loving? Mm-hmm. you know without being also hateful as well at the weekends or whatever they're just <laughs> yeah. you know loving and they just genuinely are like that throw out hell throw out this throw out that you know the gospel of john was not an eyewitness account you know Q, there's probably only 12 you know that's fine do everything you need to do but at the end of the day what i'm wondering is and i suppose this pertains to step two and three which is, question you know is there hope for you know i have got a tiny hope that the, Leo Booth, actually, who wrote the original book on religious addiction, he's written a, quite a lot about different kinds of spirituality that can arise after the addictive kind of like chaos has ended. And I'm quite hopeful that, I mean, grace, a type of grace has to be, anyone exploring this coming out of religious addiction needs to be completely sure and they know for a fact that they never have to do any ritual again, never. You know, whether Christ literally died or literally didn't die or whether, you know, whatever, they never have to do any other ritual. If there's no if there's a higher power and it's not that it's not worth anything. So you don't have to do anything never again. But then if once the void has passed, there's something arises, something organic and something real, the organic thing that we broke in our practices, if it gets fixed a little bit. Can be like, oh, God, maybe I'll just go and sit by the river and, you know, read the Upanishads or, you know, or just a little bit of it or, or some sort of secularized version of it or listen to it, Eckhart toll or, you know, and then certain things can come back in maybe in a healthy mm-hmm. way,
1: hopefully. You have to find that balance, though. I can certainly mm-hmm. resonate with what you're saying, because maybe I was a religious addict because, you know, that number one thing on your list, that practicing of compulsive religious rituals, reading my Bible every day, praying every day doing those observed practices, those rituals. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't do them, I was in dread of, you know, I'm going to get in trouble here. God's going to judge me. God's going to punish yeah. me. Things, bad things are going to happen. And I haven't read my Bible. I haven't prayed. I haven't done a quiet time, you know, in over a decade, but it took a long, long time to, like you say, rid myself of that dread of, Oh my God, I'm going to get punished. Something bad's going to happen. So time surely must be a healer in in some sense isn't it when you like you say you quit yeah. doing those practices it's not easy at first but over time mm. they hold kind of lessons on us i think
0: yeah definitely
1: and fundamentally there's there's a
0: position an individual takes where they're in the center of a community and in the center of a discourse that is close to close to the outside world you know, is what the community is doing with all that apologetics and all that. You know, 6,000-year-old Earth or whatever, we're in the science books, we're keeping all that in. And in, in the individual's life, it's the same, you know. The shutters are down in the mind. And when all that breaks down, you know, and the fear comes and the, the truth comes, or, or, you know, more truth comes and the reality hits, time certainly as we go through life with the light as it were coming in and uh, and that enclosedness has ended certainly there are self-healing properties in the mind and in the body and if there weren't we'd really really be in trouble you know and, and even for religious addicts that could, that can be like a step two you know we came to believe what well, the original step two is we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves to restore us to sanity but for religious addicts it could be that power could be the self-healing Properties of the mind and time, which compared to banging your head, uh, you know, against a brick wall with the names of God, Bible, or the John MacArthur mm. Study Bible, or whatever, you literally will get better if
1: you stop doing that. <laughs> you yeah. know, it might take you eighteen months, but you'll you'll get better. Your own <laughs> mental health, yeah. And it's funny because yeah. I can hear those tapes playing even now. You know, years mm. later, I'm going out with someone who's you know I'm I'm divorced, and that's a that's a big thing. I'm seeing somebody, and that's a big thing and things that yeah. I would have done I wouldn't I shouldn't be dating her because she's not a Christian. I can hear those tapes playing you shouldn't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. That's a that's a biblical command, isn't it? You know, and I'm thinking okay, I can consciously set those things aside. Those mm-hmm. those imperatives don't have the power over me that they once would have. I can remember breaking up with someone before I got married years ago because she wasn't a Christian. You know, and I had this big yeah. chat with her about, you know, well, we're not going to be able to go out. I really like you, but you're not a Christian and I'm a Christian and that's, you know, (laughs) and you think, my God, you know, what kind of a life was that, you know, but that's how we did it. Didn't we? That's, that was what the Bible said. Cool.
0: Actually, my because I had a backsliding phase, quote unquote, in my teens, oh. my late teens, and my, my version of that then, because I obviously imported it from the church, was, oh, you don't like, like Mudhoney and Nirvana, you know, or Dinosaur Jr. or these grunge bands that I like, so I can't date you. So it's sort of like I took that into my <laughs> sort of like early backsliding, and but but yeah, you're right. I mean, the tapes play, don't they? And then it's sort of like um, people have their own ways, I guess. You know, it's like like. The one I'm doing a lot of now is from the sort of Eastern tradition of sort of noticing, you know, we're saying, oh, there's a thought. And you say, OK, that thought is observed. Who is observing it? What is observing it? Well, it must be something that doesn't believe that thought. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to contain it like that. And then keeping that sort of mindful light on it, it seems to kind of go like blah blah, blah and either recede or go away again for next time or whatever.
1: Mm-hmm. It seems to work very well. Seems to work. Yeah. And would, would therapy play any role in this? Because obviously you've got your group. I don't know how big it is, but you're saying it's a fairly small community now. Um, mm. Would that be a helpful pattern for someone to maybe get involved in seeking therapy? Because I'm thinking too, some therapists don't understand anything about things like religious trauma syndrome or no. religious addiction. Are you finding that to be the case with, in terms of therapists, they don't even know what you're talking about? um the, what the term they use which i've heard
0: a few therapists use is spiritual bypass and that yes. has come into some of the of the literature and they, they'll they say that for religious addiction i think you know often i think it, to, to, if anyone was like who listened to this was thinking of trying to find a therapist it might be worth asking them if, they're, if they've done any work with people who have a history of like a Major sort of spiritual bypass, uh, or if they can, you know, or even things like O C D and O C D disassociation. So people who've lived therapists who've got experience, people who've just lived in a dream world, mm-hmm. which is kind of like the religious addicts, essentially, you know, being as a stimulus for that and a, a pro- proclivity and a desire to do that. So something like OCD and Dream World States, if they've got any, and but especially if they're aware of the spiritual bypass. Mm-hmm. And certainly it's hugely, hugely helpful.
1: Well, I found that that concept of spiritual bypassing, that was a huge one for me. This idea that Mm. you're hiding behind religion or spirituality, using that as a as a mask or a screen to hide actually the real issues, which is what are going on in your your mental health or whatever it might be. Uh, Is that how you understand spiritual bypassing? How does that relate to religious addiction?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's central to it. I mean, as I understand it today, I was going to say. Ideally, but there there probably is no ideal as such. They've got a utopian vision of a uh, a person whose sort of mind and body uh, and everything else um, is sort of in balance. So when an emotion comes up, they can say, "Oh, that's anger," uh, you know, or they could get they could be an experience where they feel disproportionately angry, and they'll say, "Oh, that's a bit like you know something happened to me in my childhood, and that's why I'm doing that," you know, and they'll have sort of a bit of time and space. So there's sort of a fairly healthy recognition of reality as it is that would be a kind of a sort of balanced, sort of ut- slightly utopian vision of a person so spiritual bypass is kind of like oh i I felt slightly angry towards that person when I was driving so you repent you pray for them you know you mm. you ask for the god's grace to, to that your drive sort of like better you put the worship music on you know you
1: pray but for that hill song I don't think when say that, yeah. <laughs> It should have already been yeah. playing man what are you talking about <laughs> Yeah no. yeah and then and then there's a parking space there and it's like it's all fine um, yeah, well, but, yeah, God so must have given you that parking spot, you know,
0: because <laughs> that you that repented of the
1: road rage. <laughs> yeah.
0: Parking space miracles at the best time.
1: They? Oh, they're absolute but, yeah. miracles. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: I think, and I'm, I think you might have alluded to this, that um, its roots I And mean, we've talked about therapy and everything. Its roots it could be quite early on. So um, you know, you have children who have to disassociate because of uh, trauma of various kinds, sexual trauma, and being beaten up, or abandonment or whatever so what you're going to do you're not going to start clear as a five-year-old face the truth of what your mum and dad are, are really like or whoever it is so what happens you know dolly and pony and unicorn and the dream world starts to take on so the mind will actually open up for you either helpfully or unhelpfully a space and you can kind of go and live in there you know it's sort of like um Oh God, what's one of those cyphers? Almost like where Neo goes in the matrix, you know, where he gets plugged in for the first time, it's like, mm-hmm. the white room, you know, and it's like, oh, what should we download today? You know, and sort of sexual addiction is like this as well, you know, and all, all, all the sort of fantasy things. So, you know, spiritual bypass, it's like now I've got this space, it's already there. But, but then, either you're already introduced, or you get introduced to a very powerful religious rhetoric and a very sort of stimulating, quote-unquote, environment, and the space is already there. So it just the brain chemistry and everything just takes you straight up in there, which you still are probably avoiding the thing, bad things that happened to you in the past, and you could be avoiding quite a lot of, you know, what the work we could be doing to grow up today and not to mention of course a huge amount of emotional pain any sort of trauma even you know especially religious trauma but also parental trauma the addict i mean i've, I've spoken to quite a lot of addicts you know, i've been in recovery 20 years not for this but for you know broadly speaking mm-hmm. the pain people go through like it's people don't talk about it on tv or on films like oh it's my seventh year of straight emotional pain as i try and grow up you know these stories don't really make it into mainstream media addicts tell them and it's quite hard to be willing it is like it's going to go back to the matrix again it really kind of is like oh god i took the red pill and it's kind of like it's Mm -hmm. a bit gritty and grimy down here you know no wonder (laughs) and then you go no wonder i had that severe spiritual bypass for 20 years or whatever it was
1: Mm -hmm. and then like the one guy i'm choosing to go back into the matrix i know this (laughs) i know this steak isn't real but you know what? I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I go back exactly. into the fantasy. I'm going to go back and plug into the matrix as long, as long as I'm rich and famous and you know, whatever. I don't care. Oh man, absolutely. I, yeah, I just watched all three matrix films again the other day and I thought, mm-hmm. okay, I need to sit down and watch these again. There's a lot of stuff going on in there. Well, I'm thinking too if someone yeah. is resonating with what we're talking about, thinking, okay, maybe I was a spiritual addict, maybe I am a spiritual addict. How can they find your group? How can they plug into the small, but hopefully growing community? Yeah, thanks for asking I me. Mean,
0: well, the website's there and there's a contact page on there. That gets, um, anyone who sends an email will come to me and I'll just respond to them. At the moment, there's one Zoom meeting a week um, and it's based on a time that the existing members are able to <clears throat> attend. But um, if we get inquiries and that time does not suits them, we'll do everything we can to support and have other meetings. You know, so essentially it would be like sending an email and then, if possible, coming along to a meeting. Um, the book that's out there, it's often in second-hand um, outlets now, it's called um, When God Becomes a Drug, which is by um, Leo Booth. I think it's about 20 years old now. It's still available. Um, and people can read that. They can um, send us an email. The religious trauma communities will be very helpful as well. I know Marlene Wynall's got um, a survivor's group there and, and they would be completely down with people hearing stories like that any kind of OCD uh, group could also be be helpful but as far as as far as we, we are you know, we, you know we're, we're also there and we're, we're happy to deal with inquiries and we hope that someone hears this and it could be helpful that we'll be able to we we'll just talk about what happened and how we're going to try and get well really mm-hmm. and try and work out as we go along really
1: Right. So your website is religiousaddicts.wordpress.com. Are you available yep. on any sort of social media as well? Do you have a Twitter presence, Facebook? Are you on any other social media? The
0: Facebook group um, is there. Yeah. I haven't I think I haven't pressed activate, but I will this week. I mm-hmm. mean um, it's just it hasn't got any members. And I'm sort of like
1: You kind of need uh, members because it's new. <laughs> oh right. It's just that. Maybe we can get a couple of members off the back of this episode. Yeah. Then <laughs> That'd be awesome. It sounds People like the be best there. place yeah. is, the, is the website, isn't it? That's sort of the first port of call. Then they can contact you and then get in touch maybe with that community.
0: Yeah. And I'll make sure the Facebook group says so that. I'll just be searching for um, religious. I think it's religious addiction uh, is the wording there. There's no other Facebook group like that. So there's no chance mm-hmm. of getting the other one. The um, so Facebook search We're an well. elite
1: group yeah there's nobody in there you're so elite yeah, <laughs> yeah. i knew i was special and different <laughs> yeah i don't have any followers but i'm special and different well listen michael yeah. thanks so much man it's been a really interesting yeah. chat with you i'm glad that i said like i say we had a chance i had a chance to read your articles again this week um now i'm thinking i might have been a religious addict so it's given me a lot of food for thought hopefully people will resonate with what we've talked about i'm, I'm hoping too that like i say off the back of this episode people will contact you and you know maybe get some help get some you know counseling therapies group support whatever it might be for being a religious addict
0: yeah i hope so clint yeah i mean um we all want to get well done we? with those of us who are sort of inclined towards others and many people deconstructing are, are like that and um if we can be of any help and because we learn so much from anyone who, who comes along and um i think that the community that we're all part of with your podcast part of that and the other people podcasting and without that knowledge that it comes into all those bits of content it'd be terrible wouldn't it there'd be nowhere to go because you wouldn't have anyone who's understanding you and it's like that with lips addiction as well and yeah i think it would be happy to try and help
1: okay listen thank you so much for chatting let's definitely keep in touch and we will um, talk again Brilliant. thank you Tim.